This is Citizen One, an urban exploration podcast. Welcome to episode one, The City is My Home, a small space love affair by Doug McDaniel. As an American who has boldly, or perhaps foolishly, staked a claim a mere hop, skip, and an awkward stumble from La Rambla, I've come to understand that living in Barcelona's Gothica and El Raval districts is akin to participating in an ongoing, unscripted comedy show, where the city is the star and I'm often just the punchline or a sidekick. In the last year, my life has intentionally become a living, breathing experiment in urbanism known as the five-minute city. The concept is quite simple. Everything you could possibly need, groceries, entertainment, a quick espresso or a gelato, or an even quicker divorce, should be just a five-minute walk away or about 400 meters. It is an urbanist dream, one that promotes sustainability, walkability, community, and most importantly, minimizing the need for those pesky gym memberships. It's a dream that pushes even the boundaries of Carlos Moreno's 15-minute city concept. The 15-minute city was conceived as a new urban planning model in 2016 by French Colombian city planner Carlos Moreno. Advocating for people-centered urban environments, Moreno drew inspiration from Jane Jacobs' 1961 book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, in which she proposed an urban design theory where cities act as living beings and ecosystems. Jacobs emphasized the importance of mixed-use neighborhoods, vibrant street life, local economies, and community-based planning to create safe, diverse, and thriving neighborhoods. Moreno's model gained steam when Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo adapted it into a living smart city plan that she coined the Ville du Quart d'Eux, the 15-minute city. Regardless of the various merits, distractions, controversies, or contradictions about a 15 or a 10 or a 5-minute city, the key takeaway is that density matters and that globally we need to start thinking more about how much both density and vibrancy matter. These two factors, density and vibrancy, really do matter to our overall health as a global society. In the United States alone, Dr. Vivek Murthy, the U.S. Surgeon General, recently declared loneliness and isolation a public health crisis, due in part to the consequences of the pandemic. The pandemic has had a number of invisible costs in our country, and the increase in loneliness, the increase in mental health strain, these are part of the costs, Murthy said at Fortune's 2023 Brainstorm Health Conference in Marina del Rey, California. The harmful consequences of a society that lacks social connection can be felt in our schools, our workplaces, and in our civic organizations where performance, productivity, and engagement are diminished, Murthy's public health advisory reads. We are called to build a movement to mend the social fabric of our nation. Each of us can start now in our own lives by strengthening our connections and our relationships. You are listening to the first episode of Citizen One, an urban exploration podcast. Make sure to like, subscribe, and share.
Located just 20 meters from and physically connected to the sensory overload that is La Bocaria, the historic public market with roots dating all the way back to the 13th century, we find my newly purchased Barcelona Atelier, or Tale in proper Catalonian. This tiny flat is my 34 square meter multi-purpose urban experiment in the notion that, oh yes, size does matter, but perhaps not in the way one might think. During my experience purchasing the flat in the summer of 2023, the American in me often wrestled with what would 34 or 60 square meters actually mean were I to purchase and live in such a small space. My ex-wife and I once owned a successful 4,200 square foot bed and breakfast in Knoxville, Tennessee, and my last renovation before moving abroad in 2020 was a large mid-century rancher on three-quarters of a remote wooded acre in the heart of suburbia, which kind of means nowhere in terms of urban accessibility. You had to drive everywhere, and I don't like driving a car anymore. But would I go insane in such a small space in the center of a foreign city? Or could I actually live and breathe here? Would I become lonely, or would I feel more or less connected to my community? Now, as we American gringos often commute the size of things in comparison to football stadiums, Olympic-sized swimming pools, elephants, or the number of cylinders on a Chevrolet, among other things, I held a lingering suspicion that anything less than those old American dreams of a Tesla Cybertruck in the driveway of a three-story house with a massive backyard in which to steer my John Deere riding lawn tractor might just make me seem like a simpering fool to some of those back in the old country, the USSA the United States of semi-awareness. So for my non-metric American compadres, let me explain that 34 square meters equals 365.9 square feet. I do like rounding it up as 366 is also apropos of 2024, which happens to be a leap year. So with each square of my flat representing a day of the year, I can confidently joke that I live my life one day and one square foot at a time. Let's begin with a quick tour of this tiny space. The architectural crown jewel of my compact flat in the mid-19th century building I now call home is a traditional Catalan barrel vault ceiling. It's got wooden beams and curvaceous brick arches that float gracefully overhead amid twinkling, energy-efficient lighting. The ceiling is a constant reminder that while my linguistic skills may fall flat, my living situation is anything but. This stunning architectural marvel looks down upon a curious mix of the modern and the traditional, bamboo floors that whisper underfoot, a sleek kitchen that could grace the cover of tiny homes for the terminally hip, and a writer's desk so disproportionately and counterintuitively massive, it just happens to work beautifully in the space. And it also might serve as a monument to some of my literary ambitions, or perhaps delusions. The apartment has one well-proportioned bedroom with a queen-size bed and built-in storage and a lovely full bathroom off of the small entryway. The kitchen is well-equipped. It has modernist gray cabinetry, solid surface countertops, and kind of a mahogany color, which is wild, a convection oven, a dishwasher, and a washing machine. There's a lovely kitchen window, although I have to rotate the faucet downward in order to open it. And then there's the floor-to-ceiling walnut French doors that open to a small balcony overlooking my pedestrian-only street, Carre de las Cabres, the street of the goats. Or perhaps I am the goat. 
I paid in the low 200s for the fully furnished apartment, but in the first few months, I quickly upgraded the furniture, keeping the small black leather pull-out sofa for guests, but pretty much replacing everything else. I did dream of a massive leather Chesterfield sofa, but I just didn't have room for it. It's so funny to me because when I was only 19, I lived briefly in the large Victorian apartment of my late great-uncle John Allen Maxwell, a 20th century American illustrator in the Tree Street's historic district of Johnson City, Tennessee. Only a short time after his death in 1984, I spent the whole summer of 86 lounging on his wine-colored leather Chesterfield sofa, smoking his old pipe and drinking the remains of his stores of whiskey. I finally moved out, but not until after I had consumed all of his booze. Now, despite 24 years of marriage and countless American fixer-uppers that we restored or renovated, I never managed to get that leather Chesterfield sofa of my own, nor get the memory of it out of my head. However, my flat in Barcelona now features a postmodern, kind of small space reinterpretation of my uncle's old American dream. But instead of a reproduction of his massive sofa, I purchased instead a thick tiger maple minimal boho desk, essentially this extensible dining table, and I surrounded it with four gray and brown leather chairs, their high tufted backs distinctly Chesterfield in their nature. This, to me, was urban winning. Items carefully selected, precious and few, but curated for just such a small space. This was making it my home, not someone else's dream. Drawing inspiration from architect Gary Chang's domestic transformer apartment in Hong Kong, which I had seen on Apple TV, I recognized early the benefits of modularity and flexibility in such a small space. This setup allows me to extend the table when I need to, and by gathering some adjacent coffee tables that also serve kind of a triple duty as stools for both the dining room and for the balcony, I can comfortably host dinners for as many as eight people. Each morning, I can collapse the table back into its much smaller desk form for long spans of creative writing. And when the table shrinks, I can pull out the small other sofa for my overnight guests, converting the space into two bedrooms. The desk and the chairs, however, are the center of my home, a rectilinear round table for the nights of procrastination, debate, and the sudden burst of creativity. Often adorned with fresh flowers from one of the stalls only a block away on La Rabla, it's here where friends, artists, writers, and co-conspirators gather, sharing ideas and wine, the latter often more freely than the former. The balcony, though modest, offers a front-row seat to the ever-unfolding drama of La Bocaria below. And from my high vantage point, the market is not just a place for procuring edibles, but a center stage for witnessing the human condition in all its glorious variety. Living in quarters so close to the vibrant electricity of two of Barcelona's most iconic districts, Gotica and El Rival, has turned my life into an ongoing sitcom where the city itself is the protagonist. The daily opera of vendors setting up shop and waiters moving chairs and tables from their cavernous restaurants to their positions on the wide and verdant Rambla amuses me. So do the tourists navigating the serpentine maze of the old city, with their oft-vacant blend of awe and confusion as locals expertly weave through the crowds as if performing a well-rehearsed dance, a dance that I'm getting better at month by month. My mornings, too, are this comedic ballet, 
that often begins with a pilgrimage to La Bucaria. Navigating this market is a crazy exercise in human pinball, where you ricochet off of tourists mesmerized by Iberian hams while locals fiercely guard their secret spots. I try to blend in, armed with my rudimentary language skills and a smile so wide it borders on the maniacal. I procure my coffee and ensamada, this Spanish-style croissant, and some bottles of wine, each transaction a blend of charades and hopeful guessing, often leaving vendors amused and me only slightly more caffeinated. Now, as somebody who considers exercise to be that strenuous journey from the bed to the coffee machine each morning, the idea of a truly walkable city really appeals to me. And I committed myself to immersing in this compact lifestyle, so I specifically chose La Rambla as my starting line, a boulevard so famous for its pickpockets that you would think they were a listed tourist attraction. Here, though, I found the streets to be quite safe if you weren't a fool, careless with your bags or your phone, and you kept things close to you. A fundamental of the five-minute city rule is that fresh produce should be a mere 400 meters from my doorstep. And now beyond the lavish offerings of La Bocaria, I often found nestled between souvenir shops selling iHeart BCN thongs and touristic cafes, a large number of quaint shops and bodegas almost hidden in plain sight from the tourists, each of them selling affordable, locally fresh produce, cheese, ham, as well as sheets and towels and lamps and cleaning supplies and, yep, of course, wine. There were also seven ferreterias or hardware stores within a short radius of my place that sell everything from paint and plumbing and electrical supplies, ladders, tools, and yes, the all-important picture hooks. Basically, everything I needed to fix and furnish my flat was truly less than five minutes away in my city of the future. Now, beyond the shops and the department stores and, of course, the museums and the tourist attractions, there were also so many galleries, hat shops, knife stores, pastisserias or patisseries, as we say in Paris, gelato stands, barber shops, and tattoo parlors at my disposal. One of my favorite traditions is to stroll through the open-air artist market near the Basilica Santa Maria del Pi on weekends when artists flock there to sell their works. The expansive world of this city has indeed become my five-minute oyster. Many days, I'd reserve time for some intellectual escapades at La Centrale de Raval, a bookstore that has made its home in this breathtaking old monastery. Now, this isn't your run-of-the-mill bookstore. It's a sanctuary for bibliophiles, with towering shelves of books nestled among ancient stone walls and serene green spaces where you can dive into your latest literary find. It's a place where history, literature, and nature embrace, and it offers this tranquil escape from the city's frenetic pace. Truly one of my favorite places in Barcelona. You are listening to the first episode of Citizen One, an urban exploration podcast. Make sure to like, subscribe, and share. But cultural immersion often finds me at Placa de Real, the very heart of the old city attempting to absorb centuries of history just through osmosis. Here, I listen to street musicians, I chat with friends while sipping a cafe con leche as I thumb through Catalonian books, try to grasp the historical significance of the stones underneath my feet. 
In truth, <laughs> though I'm often just as concerned about finding a cafe with a restroom and in uncovering the secrets of medieval Catalonia. You know, there are times though when I need peace from the tourists and perhaps a slice of greenery not overrun by selfie sticks. So I frequently venture to the Mosin Costa Ilobera, the gardens at the foot of Montjuic. This hidden gem with its array of prickly residents mirrors my own attempts to acclimate, slightly out of place, but striving to thrive. Amidst cacti that seem as bewildered by their surroundings as I am by mine, I find a kinship with these spiky expats. Nighttime escapades inevitably lead to Bar Marseille, an establishment that's whispered Hemingway's name so often that it's practically a liturgy. Sipping absinthe in a setting that suggests time travel might indeed be possible, I strike up conversations with fellow wanderers. Each encounter is a reminder that while my Catalan or Spanish may falter, the universal language of laughter needs no translation. And when I'm not at Bar Marseille or down in a bitter Negroni at London Bar, this other iconic if slightly touristic writer's haven and a place of pilgrimage for the likes of Dolly, Picasso, and yes, again, Hemingway, there's always Betty Ford's dive bar in the nightlife district of Carre de Joaquin Costa. Betty's is far enough from the tourists and just dodgy enough, like me, to feel at home. The curry is spicy, the B-movie nights are a blast, and the Alhambra Reserva is only three and a half euros. Here, the city, and not just my tiny 365-square-foot urban universe, is my home. Because I truly live in the expanse of the city, I can make every item and every inch of my flat find a greater story, a purpose. The space constraints have taught me the fine art of curation. What earns a place in my life, and what, like excess words in a draft, must be edited out. It is a daily exercise in minimalism, not just of belongings, but of being. Here in the shadow of the Gothic Quarter, life is stripped down to its essence and I am constantly reminded of the beauty of simplicity. I cherish my German language poster of Fritz Lang's 1927 cinematic oeuvre, Metropolis, along with a theatrical poster of Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction and, of course, the obligatory Salvador Dali print with his iconic quote, I don't do drugs, I am the drugs. Yo tambe, Señor Dali. Me too. Living just a block from the cacophony and charm of La Rambla, I've embraced the absurdity and beauty of my utterly surreal new life. Each day, it's a lesson in humility, a testament to the unexpected joys of getting lost, both literally and metaphorically, in a city that really does dance to its own rhythm. Barcelona, with its blend of gothic gravitas and El Raval's riotous color, has become more than just a backdrop for my expat follies and adventures. It is a character in its own right, indulging my missteps with a patient chuckle. And as I navigate this life, a stone's throw from La Rambla's endless theater, I've come to cherish the romantic comedy of errors that is my new, wonderfully Catalonian experience. The nearest beach, the Playa de la Barceloneta, is a short 15-minute stroll with friends. Weekend writers' groups and nearby bars and cafes offer frequent inspiration, and then there are the English-language stand-up comedy nights at such memorable venues as the Comedy Clubhouse, the Black Lab, or the Imperfecto Poblo Noon. You know, I've never felt lonely here, nor do I feel disconnected, despite my lack of fluency in either Catalan or Spanish. With such open-mic comedy themes as Space Cowboy, Midweek Crisis, 
nonsense pudding and coffee cum comedy, I fit right in, and the humor and the friendships are profound and meaningful to me. Here's the catch. I have to make the effort to get out of my small space and into the rest of my home. That is the city itself. We all need to. This close-knit existence, where my world is as wide as my windows and as deep as my desk, has become a canvas for a life less ordinary. It's a place where laughter echoes off ancient walls, where friendships are forged over shared meals so close to their source that you can still hear the market's din, and where inspiration is as plentiful as the olives and oranges just a stone's throw away. On this expansive urban stage that merely begins with my own 34 square meters, each day is a comedic new episode, each urban challenge a punchline waiting to be delivered. And as I navigate the quirks and charms of expat life in Barcelona, there's one thing that remains abundantly clear. In this city and in this apartment, the best things truly do come in small, hilariously packed packages. Thanks for listening to episode one of Citizen One, an urban exploration podcast. I hope we can do this again. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Citizen One, an urban exploration podcast. Make sure to like, subscribe, and share.